Father, we, we, uh, we thank you for your servant, John, and how you preach the gospel to us powerfully through him. And we pray that our hearts would be open and our minds would be open to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I know we already have a lot to think about. Um, so all I want to do with my time now is to remind us of the simple gospel, the core message of Christianity. Uh, this is what we want all of our children to grow up knowing, uh, and this is what we say to anyone who asks what we believe. So please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 991 of the Church Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're starting off in verse 12. It's 991. Alright, so Taylor kicked off our sermon series in 1 Timothy last week, and he showed us that by this point in Paul's life, when he wrote this letter, he was a very senior leader in the church. He's basically at this point an archbishop, um, and he's writing to Timothy, who's basically like a bishop at this point. Uh, Timothy's in charge of several congregations. And when Paul writes, we see here, starting verse 12, that one of the first things that he talks about is the gospel. Both of them would have known this message so well. They've both been teaching it for decades. They've given their lives to serving and spreading this message. But here, when an archbishop writes to a bishop, he writes to him about the gospel. Would that our own leaders were always writing to each other about the gospel. Um, and when we look at what Paul says about it, we see the full basic message of the gospel laid out here. Um, so if somebody asks you, what do Christians believe? You say this, that our biggest problem is sin that makes us guilty before God, but Jesus has solved that problem by dying <coughs> to save us, so that now through him we can live a new life with God, right? That's the gospel. That's Christianity in a nutshell. And it's a message so simple that we can say it in one breath. Our biggest problem is sin that makes us guilty before God, but Jesus solved that problem by dying to save us so that through him we can now live a new life with God. That's the gospel. And there are a hundred ways to express the same thing, but in order to be faithful to the message, we have to include those three basic ingredients that Paul includes. He includes sin, salvation, and new life. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. I just want to unpack those three ingredients together as Paul explains them to Timothy. So first, sin. Why do we need to be saved? Here's what Paul says in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So that language is all in the past tense, but then verse 15 switches to the present tense. Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Archbishop Paul is not afraid to say that the sin problem is his problem. And the language that he uses of himself is extreme language. He doesn't pull any punches here about himself. So first, Paul calls himself a blasphemer. And that was one of the worst offences under Jewish law. It was punishable by immediate death by stoning. Second, he calls himself a persecutor, which in Paul's case included the murder of Christians. Then third, he describes himself using the Greek word hubrisis, which the ESV translates an insolent opponent. 
And it means an extreme, it's an extremely negative word. It describes someone who is incorrigibly arrogant and violent. Right? It's the kind of person who's always drunk, always spoiling for a fight, and inevitably ends up in jail before very long. Hubristes. Incredibly negative word. Um, and fourth, Paul says that of sinners, he is the foremost. That means the first, the chief, or in this case, the worst. So Paul does not in any way dilute his own expressions about his own sin. And, notice here, he doesn't counterbalance them with the good that he's done since, or how much he's suffered, or what a nice person he is now. He's willing to just call sin, sin. Call it out for what it is. And I really want to linger here on this first point, this first part of the gospel, that we have a sin problem. I want to linger here, not because I think it's the most important part of the gospel, although it is essential, um, or because it's the best part, because it isn't, um, or because it's the part that Paul talks the most about, because he doesn't, but because we modern Americans don't talk about this enough. We have a sin problem, and it's very serious. We tend to skip over really thinking about the problem so that we can talk about the glorious solution. And while that's understandable, it actually robs the solution of some of its glory. We need to be realistic about our sin. So let's define sin. Uh, Sin is a very misused word, uh, and all of the ways that we misuse it tend to minimize it. They make it sound like a little bit of an indulgence on the side. Uh, So for example, I once received a gift that was a multi-pack box of seven different flavors of hot chocolate mix, and it was called the Seven Deadly Sins. Um, And if our culture ever uses the word sin at all, it's probably in a context something like that. Um, So let's figure out what the word actually means. And for this, I want to turn to an expert theologian, J.I. Packer, because he expresses this so well. Um, This is from uh, his book, Describing Sin, uh, from a concise theology on his chapter on sin. He says, Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person. It means rebellion against God's rule, missing the mark God set us to aim at, transgressing God's law, disobeying God's directives, offending God's purity by defiling oneself, and incurring guilt before God the judge. And J.R. Packer adds that sin stands revealed as an energy of irrational, negative, and rebellious reaction to God's call and command. A spirit of fighting God in order to play God. Isn't that so beautifully expressed? Couldn't do any better than Packer, so I read it. Uh, I think he just says that beautifully. A spirit of fighting God in order to play God. So sin is fundamentally an offence against God. And so it's serious for two reasons. It's serious because God is great and because we are great. Okay, let me explain that. If we commit an offence against someone, what the offence is matters far less than who we're offending and who we are. Okay, imagine this scenario. If I spit at a stray cat, nobody really cares, okay? If I spit at one of you, then you'll probably leave the church and you might press charges. If I go to England and I spit at the Queen, I might end up in jail. So it's the same action by the same person, but it gets more serious when I offend someone of a higher status. So what if I spit in God's face? How serious of a crime is that? 
And then similarly, the offence also gets more serious when the offender gets more great. So if a monkey takes $10 out of my wallet, then we all laugh, right? If a child does it, then we're still going to laugh, but the mum will probably have words with the child. If you took $10 out of my wallet, then we'd be into the territory of criminal action. And if a judge did it, now we're into the territory of social disintegration. Even over such a small thing as taking 10 bucks. So the severity of an offence depends far less on the offence itself than it does on the greatness of the person being offended and the, and the status of the person doing the offending. You see that? Now the Bible says that God is infinitely great and that we ourselves are the greatest beings in the material universe and that is why sin is serious. Not because of what we've done but because of who we've done it to. So even one lie or one angry thought or a moment of cowardice shakes the foundation of the earth. It's serious. How serious? Well, we can't honestly say. But two things give us a clue about the seriousness of sin. The first thing is that all the suffering in the world is a result of sin. Now, I don't mean specific sufferings, but specific sins. There's not a tit-for-tat or a quid pro quo. The Bahamas were not hit by Hurricane Dorian because those people were unusually wicked. Jesus tells us, do not think that way. But, nevertheless, all suffering in the world comes from sin in general. So if you trace any suffering on earth back to its root cause, you always, always end up in the Garden of Eden. Back there at the original sin, when death came into the world, when the earth declared war on us. And when all our relationships fell apart. There is no other cause for suffering on earth other than that event. There would be no suffering at all without sin. And we inherited and perpetuate the same sin that caused all of that. And when you think about that and you start to sum up the unfathomable amount of grief and pain and trauma and terror that we're talking about. Maybe then we can catch a glimpse of just how serious sin really is. And even as we think about that, we also know that all the suffering on earth is less than sin deserves. God is still actually being patient. What we're seeing so far is only the natural consequences of sin. God's final judgment on sin is still to come. How terrifying will that be? And then the second clue to how serious this problem is, is in what God had to do to pay for sin. He had to spill the blood of his own son, the son that he loved, who had, who had never offended him in any way. So I want to do with you this little thought experiment. If God had wanted to save you and only you, just one person from just the life you have actually lived up to this day, what would he have to do to save you? We believe, don't we, that his only method to do so would be to send Jesus to the cross, even for you and for your sins so far. If there was any other way, then God the Father would have spared his son, wouldn't he? But the Bible acknowledges no other way to pay for sin. All the wealth of the earth would not pay it, even if the earth were a single solid diamond. And all the tears of the world would not pay it, even if everybody on earth did nothing but weep for you. 
And all the good works in the world would not cure it, even if everyone on earth promised to do nothing else ever again but good works. You can sum all of those things and multiply to infinity, and they still don't pay for sin. They're just not valuable enough. Only the shed blood of the eternal Son of God is valuable enough. And that shows us just how serious sin is. How hugely, breathtakingly vast this problem is. Sin is universe-shatteringly serious. It's a bigger problem than anything shown in any Marvel movie. Um, and it may or may not comfort you to know that we will never be attacked by evil aliens from outer space simply because we ourselves are the wickedest life form in the universe. There may be life out there, but I'm convinced there is no life out there more wicked than us. We hold that dubious honour. And Paul, who gave his life up for Jesus and was persecuted and was beaten and was stoned and who went hungry, still said, I am a sinner. All of, of all the sinners in the world, I am the foremost. He doesn't believe for a second that any of that suffering or work has paid for the problem. This problem was still his problem, not someone else's, mine. And that should be an attitude that we share with Paul. So uh, John Stott said this, Common sense tells us not to take Paul's statement about being the worst sinner as a precise scientific fact. For Paul had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them, and concluded that he was worse than them all. Got to love the English. The truth is, rather, that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up on all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sin that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. And Stott said, this is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. So Father, please awaken our own consciences to this reality. Increase our grief over our own sin and please save us from entitlement. Amen. So here's a saying that's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You know it as verse 2 of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Uh, it says, Not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin would not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So that's the first foundation stone of Christianity. Uh, but it gets much better from here, and I will also get much briefer. Um, so the second ingredient of the gospel is salvation. How does God save us? Paul says in verse 13, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So sin leaves us utterly guilty and utterly unable to pay. Our situation before God becomes one of total helplessness with nothing to do but suffer the consequences and wait for his inevitable judgment. Except that God was not willing to leave it there. And God was not helpless God saw that all of us are just as ignorant as Paul about the seriousness of our own sin. And God refused 
to see every person he made shuffle off one by one into the endless night. And God said, no, I'm going to get them back. And that, says Paul, is the whole reason that Jesus came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Jesus is God, the eternal son who was born in the flesh as a man. He lived on the earth for some 33 years and was exactly like one of us, except that he had no sin. And then he allowed his body to be ripped open and gave up his blood and his life to pay for the sins of the whole world. Nothing but his blood can pay for anybody. But his blood is precious enough to pay for everybody. So we cannot earn our salvation by anything we say or do, but we can now receive it as a free gift of God's grace. Paul says, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me. And that Greek word for overflow means that it was overwhelmingly abundant. So if you take a brand new two litre bottle of Coke and you shake it up as hard as you can for a full minute and then you open the lid, that Coke bottle is going to overflow in this same way. And if you take that same two litre bottle of Coke and you take a little shot glass and you pour the Coke into the shot glass and keep pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring until the bottle is totally empty, then the glass is going to overflow in the same way, overwhelmingly abundant. Sin is a big problem. It is the biggest problem in the universe. But grace is bigger. Amen. Grace drowns sin. Sin is totally swamped and flooded and overwhelmed. And it doesn't stand a chance. So the wickedest life form in the universe is also the most blessed. For we alone among all the creatures of the universe have been rescued in a way that's more wonderful than was ever imagined. When we could do nothing for ourselves to help ourselves, the eternal God became a man to save man. And that will never happen again. How wonderfully, wonderfully privileged we are, despite our wickedness. And Paul just cannot help praising the Lord when he thinks about it. He cries out in his letter to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Imagine elderly Paul writing those words. He's told the same message to a hundred thousand people over his life. But the joy of it never runs dry. Our salvation is a free gift of God and it comes to us only through God's grace. So we sing again in Rock of Ages verse 3. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. So now we come to the third ingredient of the Gospel, and it's purpose. Why does God save us? And the purpose is that we might live a new life, that we would leave the old life of sin and begin a new life with God, a life that looks very different. Now, sometimes we leave this part out of our gospel, but we can't do that because it's essential. We can't receive salvation from Jesus and then go on with our lives as if nothing happened. We've been given a new start, a new identity as God's children, and we're called to live a new life of holiness. 
So Rock of Ages again, I love this hymn, we're going to sing it later. Uh, sing it all week, it's getting your, get your brains, it's pure gospel. Rock of Ages in verse 1, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So his blood does both and we need to receive the purity along with the forgiveness. So Paul says in verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So when we read this, we remember that Paul changed, didn't he? He had changed life through his encounter with Jesus. He came out of his old life as a blasphemer and a persecutor and a murderer and an insolent opponent. And he entirely stopped doing those things. He didn't occasionally murder a Christian. Um, he turned his back on his old life and his old sin. And it's only because of that change that Jesus could point to Paul as an example and say, look at this man, he's different now. This is the transformation that the gospel can accomplish. And then Paul goes on to address Timothy in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some may shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. There's a new life on the other side of salvation. And yes, it's going to feel like a daily battle. You're going to feel like you're a fish that's been floating along with the current very happily. But then it turns around and it has to start swimming upstream. And all of a sudden, that's so much harder. But it's what we must do because the current of the world is floating on down to hell. The current is not our friend. It's sweeping us away to death. And we need to turn and we need to fight it. And we need to win the gospel is good news that people can change. God loves us enough to meet us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. That's right. So I'll close with this. Um, City Walk Thrift Store here in town is a Christian ministry that supports parole prisoners and especially supports former sex offenders. And the slogan of the thrift store, you can see it up on their sign on um, Monroe Street, is this. Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. Awesome. It's such a beautiful expression of the gospel. Every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. And that's so wonderfully true in every single case. There is no saved person on earth who wasn't saved out of fatal sin. And there's no sinner on earth who can't be. So if you had to apply one of those two titles to yourself this morning, either saint or sinner, which one would you pick? You probably feel like neither one really fits you, but I ask you to pick one, sinner or saint, which do you feel like today? Um, if you pick sinner, then I want to talk to you first. City Walk says, and they're right, every sinner has a future. You have a future. But before you can really want that future, you have to realise just how bad things really are for you in the present. As the alcoholics say, you have to hit rock bottom. I say to you with love that the title sinner does indeed apply to you and that it's serious. 
fatally serious. Because of this title, you will continue to suffer in the way you are suffering now, every day until you die. And there is no hope for you to shed that title by any tears, any self-denial, or any good works that you might try to use against it. You will carry this title to your grave, and then you will face the judgment of God. But today I have for you a different future. An offer of mercy from God, but only one offer. If you ignore this offer, then you cannot expect to receive any other mercy from God. I would be negligent in my responsibility to let anyone here think that this is less serious than it is, or that you have any other hope than this offer. If you do not let Jesus pay for your sins on the cross, then you will pay for them yourself in the flames. But that is unnecessary. And God doesn't want that. Despite everything you may have done, he loves you and he wants you for his own child. And God has charted out for you a future, a good future, better than anything you ever imagined. And as a fellow sinner, I urge you with every fiber of my being to take this deal. No other deal will ever come your way. Now, I want to address those of you who picked saint. Now, I know when you say that, that you don't think you're perfect, there's still sin in there, but Jesus has called you righteous because of his blood and you believe him. So yes, you're a saint. Here's what City Walk says, every saint has a past. All right. It's clear here at the end of Paul's life that he had not forgotten his past. It was a present source of joy and thanksgiving for him that he had been rescued out of his old ways. And so may it be for us. We have a past. We were rescued from certain death. Let's never forget that rescue or lose our joy in it. But now let's make those old ways past. One of the most important and challenging words in this passage is the word formally. In verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, I was formally a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, meaning I am not one anymore. Those were labels, and they could be applied to me once, and they stuck to me once, but they do not stick to me anymore. And if we want to join Paul in the new life of faith, we must also fight the good fight to consign all those labels to the past. Paul is stern and frank with the Corinthian church about this. He says to them, if you remain a liar... If you remain an adulterer, or a fornicator, or a thief, or a glutton, or a drunkard, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, you have only received half of the gospel. You have not allowed the blood of Jesus to make you pure. So fight, saints, and keep fighting to make it true that such were some of you. And then keep fighting until all the sin in our lives is defeated or we have died in the attempt. Every saint has a past, but thanks be to God, every sinner has a future. So tell this to your children and your friends and to anyone who will listen, because there really is no bad news in the world apart from sin, and there's no good news in the world apart from the gospel. Amen. Amen.